like it's very challenging to have a large dessert as Americans often do at the end of a meal. I feel like it should be in the afternoon. So if culturally we could wrap our heads around having a dessert tasting in the afternoon, a lot like British tea, maybe that would work. You're listening to the Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. What a joy it is to have Claudia Fleming live in the studio. Claudia is currently the executive pastry director of Union Square Hospitality Group and the author of the new cookbook, Delectable, Sweet and Savory Baking. But many listeners may know Claudia from her iconic and once out of print first cookbook, The Last Course. In this episode, we dive into Claudia's long career working in New York City restaurants and writing books. We find out how the pandemic brought a great opportunity to write Delectable, a book I think should be considered a modern baking classic. I also pick her brain about some of life's biggest baking mysteries. It's so cool getting to know Claudia Fleming a bit better. Claudia Fleming, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Long time coming. I've I've followed your work. I I was just saying off mic, you know, your book... The last course, I, I talked about it for like 15 years with a variety of people, like like people like Melissa Clark who wrote it with you, but also just journalists and bakers and friends who are like, this is the greatest cookbook ever. Brooks Headley actually once said, he called it the single greatest restaurant cookbook of all time, restaurant dessert cookbook of all time, that from Brooks Headley, the pastry chef extraordinaire. Okay, so this book, it was out of print for like 10 years. What was going on there? I... I wish I knew. I, I um, and it it seemed that it got very popular once people couldn't have it. <laughs> it yes. seemed like everybody wanted it once it was out of print. Um, you know, it came out in October of two thousand and one, so right after yep. the towers were hit. So I think it kind of went unnoticed. To be quite honest, um, it was very hard to get people excited about a cookbook, right? I mean, it, yeah. it was not, it didn't seem very important at the time. And so I think it was a very long, slow build for it to gain traction. And um, and so it, it, it didn't really, you know, blow things out of the water. So it yeah. was quite surprising when when they stopped, you know, reprinting that there was a demand for it. Um, it was a surprise to everybody, I think. I mean, it was a book that ultimately was selling on eBay for three, four hundred dollars. I think crazy. Bonnie Slotnick never had it, and I think bon- and Kitchen Arts and Letters never had it. Okay, so my question is: There's recipes in it that are like canon at this point. It still blows my mind. I still, I, I you know, thank thank goodness. I I very very grateful. Um, I guess, I don't know, just speaking from the heart is kind of where it's at. I wasn't trying to do anything spectacular or, you know, anything that would last this long. I was just trying to record a time in history, I guess. But your pastry, I think what drew many to a professionals and and, and amateur bakers was that it it drew on American comfort classics. But it clearly 
was was written the recipes with precision, mm. and you were you were kind of codifying ideas that were like stuck in the restaurant world. Salted caramel being one of them, right? <laughs> salted yeah. caramel. You you basically put salted caramel on the map. It, and and I have to say, I think that's because I was working in a place that had so much. I mean, I was working at Gramercy Tavern. Yeah. All eyes were on Gramercy Tavern all the time for many years. And so whatever Tom or I did became a thing. Um, I contend that if, you know, I worked at a restaurant in West Michigan, perhaps, that I don't know that people would have noticed. Yeah. Right? I was in the Big Apple and with lots at a restaurant that garnered tons of attention. You're so modest. You really are. I I don't know. And Melissa would tell me that um, I was the only, well, one of the very few cooks that would return phone calls. So that made journalists want to talk to me. Yeah. And so so I got to talk. I mean, you're street smart savvy. You, you Returning phone calls to journalists is a great thing. And still to this day, there's many it chefs who do not polite, return my right? phone calls. <laughs> I agree. I don't know. You're catching me on a day when, like, people aren't returning my phone calls. And it's kind of impolite when people— so, I agree. Not about me here. Your chocolate tart, we wrote a piece, or Daniel Galarza for Taste wrote a piece in 2019. The piece is the tart that launched a thousand tarts. And this is the recipe that ins- you, you were inspired by Rolos, right? The, the, that, that grocery store checkout line. Yeah. Candy. Yeah. But this tart now is canon. I speak about it. It is one of the most baked recipes around. Tell me. Amazing. Uh, how did you come up? What is it? What's the genesis from your words of this recipe that so many of our listeners have made? Yeah, taking a grocery store item, a ubiquitous combination, something that we all know and love, and, you know, morphing it into a restaurant level dessert. I mean, that was my job to, to yeah. do, make restaurant desserts. And I, I drew inspiration from. You know the the most basic, familiar, nostalgic things that I could because I I feel pretty strongly that when you have to order dessert and not that you have to order dessert and that's kind of the point people choose to order dessert we can live without yeah. dessert but if you order dessert generally I feel like you want something familiar and comforting and not something unfamiliar and yeah. challenging. Yeah. yeah. So. When when Ash entered the dessert plate, I think we got we got a little bit we lost <laughs> we lost the thesis a bit. <laughs> I mean, I love new modern pastry. I know you do too. And, and plated desserts are some of the most incredible creations. Yeah. Um but when you have dined at Gramercy Tavern and you've had a lot of comfort American food, you kind of want that chocolate caramel tort. And and the point is to please people. The point is to please guests, not to please me, right? A hundred percent. And do you remember when you, you you put that on for Tom Colicchio, your boss at the time, when you when he tasted that? Yeah, he he was like, "Yep, that's it." He's a man of few words. Sounds like Tom Colicchio is. It's funny, a man of few words who's like a, a television star, highest Q score of most TV people, and probably will run for Congress one day. Yes, I hope so. I'll vote for him. I would too. We had Melissa Clark on the show in the last month or so, and and I'd like to hear your thoughts and your memories of working with Melissa on your 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 book, The Last Course, because I feel like Melissa has done forty eight books at this point, and this is one of her favorites. Uh, you know, 
she's a superstar. And what great fortune for me to have had her as my co-author before her star, mm-hmm. you know, rose so high. Um, you sp- were speaking about the precision of the recipes in the book. Yeah. That's Melissa, right? She took she took those restaurant volume desserts and distilled them down um, to, you know, the right proportions, the essence of what they were. Um, she helped someone who is not particularly articulate, sound articulate, um, and she's a joy. She's just an absolute joy. She's so bright. She's so prolific. Um, I I just saw her last night for her, one of her book parties. Yeah. And I said, God, how do you do it? Like, it's just amazing, all the ideas. I'm so much more, (laughs) I don't know what the word is. I'm perhaps afraid i don't know yeah. i don't know what to say she's just she goes for it yeah, every she time does go man. For it. she goes for it uh, we'll talk about delectable your your follow-up and which is just one of my favorite books of the of the whole season and it, it's just it's so full of of this precision and this and this craft um i want to ask you first what makes a great baking book what makes a great desserts book when you're when you're thinking about writing delectable all these years later yeah. what's what what do you what makes it work for you um i, I think as you've mentioned, precision. Yeah. I mean, you don't want people to be frustrated at home when when they're making your desserts. I mean, it's an endeavor to, you know, pull out the pots and pans, turn on the oven, do all that. You mm-hmm. know, everyone is so incredibly busy. You want them to have success. Um, and so the precision aspect, I think, is incredibly important. Um, and, you know, the fact that they're well-tested, yeah? So yeah. if... I mean, that's so key. I mean, that is the most boring part about doing a book, right? The testing over and over. Boring and just like you talk about time. It's time consuming. So time consuming. And it's costly. Yes. And you sometimes send them out. I I send mine out and, you you know, I do them at home too. It's like it's costly. And and, But you got to do it. You got to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe boring is not the right word because I am someone who loves repetition. Yeah. Um. Because I think that's the only way to get things right. Um, but for me, the making of the recipe is over isn't the boring part. It's the cataloging of like, okay, we went from half a teaspoon of salt to a quarter of a teaspoon of salt. Yep. Got to remember to write that down. And so Kathy Young is my co-writer um, for Delectable. And we did the whole thing on Zoom. Yeah. So it was like four hours a day, had my iPhone in the closet, you know, in the cabinet, kitchen cabinet yep. while I'm working. And it's like, okay, move the phone down. No, I can't see what you're doing. Oh, hey, wait, stop. <laughs> what are you doing? You have to write that down. You have to tell me what you're doing. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> it was, this is a pandemic book. It was book. a lot. It was a pandemic book. Yeah. That was probably to your advantage, right? Because it gave you a project. You had just closed North Fork. North Fork Table. Yep. And you it. probably had the book deal done before the pandemic, so you're just about to do it. So did this time allow you to focus a little bit more? It gave me all the time in the world yeah. to focus. Yeah. Yeah. No, that was a gift. I I don't know that I ever could have done it working again. That was, you know, when I 
did the last course with Melissa, you know, you don't know what you don't know. So working full time and trying to do a book was completely insane. But I mean, tons of people do it. Tons of people do it, and and tons of people do it well. But I think yeah. your book, and 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 really encourage our listeners to pick it up because it really is one of my favorite of the season. It is so full, and we'll get into the different categories you're covering. But it's so full of recipes. It's really there's not a lot of story. There's not a lot of like sidebars. There's important sidebars, but it's instructive. Yeah, I, and and you know there was a real discussion about that. Like, yeah. how much do people want to know and. Do they want to really know about me or do they want to bake? And I opted for the baking part. Um, so, <laughs> Just the recipes? <laughs> Just get to the recipes, Claudia. The recipe. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a funny comment about food media and, and you know, the, do we want to overwrite, do we want to underwrite? But you pick the right lane for yourself, just from my opinion, because I think you're so full of ideas and creativity. I want to talk about Chisiamo. Yeah. Because uh, before we get to the book, you are also uh, the executive pastry chef of, of that restaurant, Others. Um, so I went and I, I tried a few of your desserts. I tried a lemon torta. I tried your chocolate budino. And, and I, I thought this through and felt like going to a museum. And I mean this with all respect because for me, I'd never tried your pastries. I never made it out to North Fork. I wasn't really – I, I probably went to Grand Mercy Tavern when you were there, but it was certainly wasn't really. I wasn't writing about food at the time, so like having your pastries IRL to me was an awakening. I was like, "Wow, Claudia Fleming pastry on the plate in front of me today." I'm going to shoot an Instagram about this guy. Do you do you feel like when you were creating that menu that you were like returning to New York and offering up your your kind of your 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 goods for all of New York? Absolutely, it was scary. It was, yeah, for sure. Um, you know, the, the paired, I mean, they were, I've always thought of my desserts as being pretty pared down and very simple and to the point, but this was a whole new level of that. You know, in the nineties, everybody had pastry departments and pastry chefs and lots of pastry cooks. Um, today, you know, economics dictate that we just can't do that anymore. No. You know, everybody's, everybody got the memo. Um, so most places have very small pastry departments. So with that means pared down simple things. And so they are almost monastic, Mm -hmm. I think, Mm -hmm. right? Like they are really to the point. Lemon torta. Lemon torta. Or budino, which we've written about on taste, which is like such a crowd pleaser. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's also, you put it on a speed rack and you can do it like in 30 seconds, right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I had the great fortune also to work, to collaborate with, with Hillary. Yeah, you Hillary know, Sterling. And, and, yes, Hillary Sterling, who is just, phew, a, what a star. What a creative, amazing, smart, fun, funny She's great. person to collaborate with. Um, she was wonderful. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I just pared things down to to their essence, I think, um, and a lot of that driven by, you know, the few people that are around to execute. <laughs> and you had a gelato, right? You have a couple frozen yeah, options yeah, too. Yeah, the gelatos. Yeah, yeah, and semifrito. Like those are those are the kind of your. I feel like your classics. How do you get the texture right? How do you do it? Um, it's you know just playing with the yeah with your ingredients and stabilizers and 
such. Exactly. I mean, it, it's got to be at that quantity in a restaurant. And then with temperatures changing, hot, I mean, it landed like perfect. I mean, it ha- you have to be able to spoon into it within a minute or yeah. 30 seconds or yeah. it kind of lights out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so hard. But you, don't, but you do want it to melt, however. You like do. you don't want to look at your, your gelato and never have it melt. <laughs> That's the hardest part when you're like in a very deep conversation and you want to try Claudia Fleming dessert, how do you, like, make the time to have that gelato? Because it, it, it does melt, and then you're, like, sad. But you've had this great conversation. <laughs> Life is hard, right? Gosh. Life is, Life is so hard. It's true. Um, you're a year out from opening about. Are you Are you thinking about more desserts in other Danny Meyer restaurants? Are you, are you what's, what's the future of restaurants? And we will get to the book soon. Well, it's kind of um, my job is really as a roving yeah. pastry sort of in-house consultant. Um, so anywhere from Chisiamo to Manhattan to Daily Provisions to Marta to – so I'm kind of all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say more um, mentoring, collaborating with yeah. the pastry leads who are in those restaurants. So that's really fun. So Chisiama will be where we can try your desserts, like kind of like well, the menu. Well, I've kind of segued out of there. Got it. Yeah, I'm not there full time. Yeah. Is there a muffin on the menu at Daily Provisions? Because you have a muffin chapter that is there really is, profound. It is not. <laughs> is it? Um, <laughs> it is not my recipe. Um, yeah, yeah. They have a, you know, a list of classics that they're working with at the moment, and I haven't interjected myself into that yet. yeah so. I mentioned muffins because you have a, your one of your opening chapters is breakfast baking breakfast baking and to me it's long it's long it's involved and it, it's almost like a mission statement that we should bake more at breakfast agree it, you, we were in lockdown right yeah so uh, all things seemed possible yeah um, would it be the same in retrospect not sure maybe maybe not so a lot of what I did, you know, when you're testing recipes, you have all this food. You're like, oh, my God, what am I going to do with all this food? So I would literally – so I was testing out on Long Island on the North Fork in teeny tiny cottage, electric oven, electric stove. One of each. Three – no, same, same. The You know, whole thing was electric, no gas. Sorry, I mean like you had one one oven in one range. Like there wasn't oh, like yeah. a – we envisioned sometimes there's like three. Oh, no. no. And like maybe three feet of prep space. You know, I mean it was – it's as big as a New York City kitchen. Sounds perfect, Claudia, to write a cookbook. <laughs> Just perfect. I would literally deliver baked things to my neighbors and put them in the mailboxes because ah. we were in lockdown. We couldn't see each other. We couldn't, you know – come within six feet of each other. So I was delivering lots of things. Um, So it just really became about sharing. Yeah, just in breakfast, just, I don't know, muffins just seemed like the perfect shareable. We did start with that chapter. Oh, you did? Okay, I was wondering because it's long. It sounds like it's maybe a kickoff chapter where it's like, okay, we've got like, I don't know, 10 to 12 muffin. no. I it felt I don't know maybe it's eight I, maybe it was it's, more than maybe it's four more than two okay so <laughs> my memory because it's a long book I just remember muffins being something that I just don't bake I mm-hmm. bake like, maybe and they're a so cake. easy they are yeah I mean yeah. you weigh everything out the night before throw it together in the morning thirty minutes you have hot muffins 
And who doesn't love a hot muffin? Who doesn't love it? Is baking focaccia easy? Um, It's the easiest bread to make for sure. And it's so gratifying. Yeah. I mean, love it. Between the crumb and the the, over-the-head image for Instagram, it's kind of perfect. No, no. Let's get serious about focaccia. You you baked it every day at North Fork Inn. I did. Did you ever get sick of baking it? Never tired of it. Because it's just so different every day. Yeah. You You know, bread is just has a life of its own and I mean everything is different every day but you know it is literally a living breathing thing it sure is so um, you know you get to learn the nuances of it and how it changes each day and how you have to adjust and it was really fun and that you know big puffy you know lumpy Mm -hmm. thing coming at it I was just so great it It looks like a science project yeah when it's it's ended it's but yeah but it's not hard. What mistake am I making when making focaccia? I want to. I, I rarely make it, but I'd like to hear. What from do your, you? What What are you unhappy about? Uh, I just it gets too tough. It gets too tough. Huh? Like there, overproofing. It isn't the tenderness. That it isn't the flaky. No, that's not the right word. It isn't the puffy. 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 Slightly chewy. Yeah, that's I mean, what I'm going like. to say you're probably overproofing it. Overproof. Okay. Yeah, which is easy to do because it's. Got a good amount of yeast relative to yeah. a lot of other breads, yeah. Okay, so you write about cookies. I love this line. I'm going to read it. I find cookies all uh, all but irresistible, and for me, their compact size is a big part of the appeal. Just a few bites delivers a sort of flavor and engaging texture. So well said. The cookie delivers. Cookies deliver in general, I think, especially the smaller ones. Is that the key for a cookie is, is kind of thinking like smaller? For me, for me it is. I, I like... Small, intense, not yes. into big, lackluster. Yeah, uh, when they get too big, it's almost like that's what you get at like a ski resort. Mm-hmm. You know, those are like what you get at like a place that shouldn't be really making cookies when they get to be that big. You know, you want them like the real serious Levant. Like you get these like tiny little intense, intense flavors. Yeah, I mean, you couldn't possibly eat a very intense cookie that's four inches around, right? I mean, what's the key then? So when I'm thinking about uh, making cookies and I'm thinking about intensity, it's a broad question, but I'd like to maybe we can focus it as a second part. Like, what are some flavor, favorite flavor combinations? But first, like, what? How do you get that intensity? I think high quality ingredients have an intensity that lesser quality ingredients don't have. Um, they cost less for a reason. Yeah, it's not arbitrary, right? They're they're either um, diluting flavors with other things, um, so you wind up with a le- with less intensity. Better flour, better butter, butter, ta- butter, butter. Yes, of course. The so, butter, butter, and you know, chocolate, vanilla. You know, those things aren't interchangeable. Okay, so if I'm at like a general, like a shop, right, and I, I'm like most like myself baking from a normal grocery store, what's a butter I'm looking for? I go for Land O'Lakes, unsalted, always. Interesting. This isn't one of those maybe from a country in Europe butters. Land O'Lakes is not a country. Well, people don't always have access to that. Yeah. Anybody should be able to make basically anything in there. Yeah. Is there a flour type that's ideal for cookie making, baking? Um, You know, they can kind of um, adapt to a lot of different Mm-hmm combinations and types of flour, but nut flours are always great in, you know, combined with all-purpose flour. Um, 
because they add an additional tenderness. Okay. It's tender, not texture, when you're talking about nut flowers, like an yeah. almond flower. Yeah. Interesting. Because there's no, there's no gluten in them. So there's no ability for them to produce toughness or, you know, they just sort of crumble. And you, but you have to get it right to the gram because if you put too much in, you're kind of— Well, you're eating dust kind of. Yeah, you're eating dust. <laughs> gram scales, we don't even need to get into that, but you got to buy that. you got to have a scale. got to buy it. got to have a scale. We're, we're, we're post-pitching the gram scale and taste. I hope so. We're, we're post-it. Maybe not. Buy your gram scale. Okay, so your brownies, it, it, really, it really shocked me when I read your favorite brownie is gluten-free. Wow. You know, favorite. I think you wrote. I, I, you know, it was a point in time. <laughs> my my favorite. And I'm not the saying pan- it's not my favorite. This is the pandemic brain. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, oh, my God, maybe I couldn't get flour. And I and I had almond flour. And so that became my favorite brownie it. at that um, moment. You know, and that happens when you're testing also. You know, it's like, oh, this is the best thing I've ever made. I mean, you kind of have to feel that way. Otherwise... You wouldn't be writing about it or putting it in a book, right? So, best editing note I ever received was from Francis Lamb when he's editing my first cookbook. Sell the deliciousness in the second line of the head note or the first line, and and using hyperbole and calling it the best. Nothing wrong with that. Not. That's I'm just teasing. Awesome advice. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. It's kind of head note writing 101. But yeah. Back to this brownie, it is gluten free, but what all, what flour are you using? Almond flour? Did I make that up? No, what, what no, flour? no, it's um, no. You're not making that up. It's yeah. almond flour. Yeah. Ah. So so, what's this brownie? Are, are you? Is it cocoa powder? Is it? No, it's chocolate it, mm. and butter and almond flour and eggs. Yeah. Um, it's key that you allow it to set because again, without the gluten, um, the texture, it really needs to form and set and um, become homogenized because it doesn't have much structure without the gluten. We've all been there, and we've had those great brownies that are great for a moment, and then they fall apart in your hand, and we're all sad. So you you want—and so the almond flour ends a slight amount of nuttiness, but mostly it adds a chewiness Mm -hmm. to it without using gluten. You know when you have brownies and the chocolate doesn't taste like chocolate? How, like, what am I doing wrong there? And what? How can I make that better? With like, what chocolate am I using for a brownie? Am I using a semi-sweet? Am I using a bitter? I use a bitter sweet. Bitter sweet. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And add more salt. You are the queen of salted <laughs> caramel. You invented it. I didn't invent it. You're, you're, you you do not receive a, a dime for every salted caramel latte from Starbucks. <laughs> I do not. <laughs> I'm kidding, but you did really codify that flavor profile in our in our canon of flavor f- profiles. <laughs> okay. <laughs> add more salt. I, I will take that. I'll add more um, salt to pastry. And vanilla. Add salt and vanilla. They always pump up flavor. This is so fun just riffing on these ideas with you because it's like the book is just full of everything. Like it is full of – let's get to the pie section. You're welcome. Let's talk about what – kind of fruit should I use in the next two months before we get to that real fall? What, what, are, what are we baking with right now? Well, you know, it's funny. This is sort of a transitional time between yeah. summer and fall. Um, and so my favorite combination at this time are the raspberries from summer and the apples from fall. Yeah. Um, and it's just a natural and perfect bridge. 
And so if I'm making a fruit pie um, or a crostata, which is my all-time favorite thing to make, um, that's the combo I'm, I'm going for. Yeah. Raspberries and apples. It's so it's so smart. And you could do that off-season too. So if you're in, in talking about February, mm-hmm. you may be listening to this in February – I mean, am I doing that again? Am I thinking apples and, and, and raspberries? Or what am I doing in, the, in that deep winter? Oh, citrus. There's a coconut lemon pie in there. Yeah. Um, that's kind of a riff on a, a shaker lemon pie. Um, so so fruit pies, you know, evolve as the year evolves. Yeah. Um, but apples for sure. And, yeah, you can use frozen raspberries. You just need to use a little bit more thickener. Yep. Um, do you use in your crostatas? Are you using almond flour in those as well? Nope. No. Nope. Why crostata then? Why is it your favorite as I, opposed to like a, a traditional pie crust, a lard pie crust? Um, I don't know. I just love the flaky, butteryness mm-hmm. of them, and I like that there is actually a higher ratio of crust to fruit. I love the crust. It's it's love for crust, crust lovers. It's not yeah. for the apple pie filling lover. D- yeah. Yeah. It's not for a deep dish. Deep dish. Pie person. God. Yeah. I mean, pies. Like, seriously, are we going to stack? Can we stack rank dessert? I mean, are pies in the top two for you? Uh-huh. Yeah? No, okay. top three. Top three. Yeah. It would be ice cream, yes. cookies, and pies. I knew ice cream was one. <laughs> it has any pastry chef worth their salted caramel will say <laughs> ice cream's number one. It's really the holy grail, right? Yeah. Yeah. You can make any flavor into ice cream pretty much. You sold North Fork and you moved back to the city. Is that right? Yes, I did. So when you made that move, um, do you find yourself dining out in New York? I'd love to hear because you really are like you have a, a, a lot of folks in your life who are in the professional pastry world. Are there, are there chefs who you really admire who you're tasting pastry with this, this year that we should seek out? Like everybody else, I'm fixated with all the bakeries that are proliferating. Um, and so many pastry chefs that I know and admire have gone that route. Um, Yunji Lee have, yeah. oh my gosh, like, have you been to Lee, that shop? Lise? Yeah. I have not been to Lise. I, I, the hours, I don't live in the city, I live in the Hudson Valley, so I'm not here all the time, but I've yet to, I've, I've DM'd with her. They look amazing. Lise. Uh, talk about a museum. Yeah, right. It's stunning. Yeah, tell me about it. What, what's going on there? Um, it is like a museum. You know, each pastry is individually displayed, yep. you know, with a spot on it. And um, they are just stunningly beautiful and incredibly delicious, magically delicious. Um, her flavor combinations are unusual. And mm-hmm. she does a corn pastry, and corn is one of my yeah. My fave flavors um, with the uh, corn custard, which I absolutely adore. Um, yeah, her her stuff is just really, really it's, special. It's it's Lise. I, I hope to have her on the show. She she just wrote a cookbook too, which I yeah. need to check out. I was having dinner with Pichet Young uh, this oh, summer. Pichet. Yeah, shout out. Yay. Previous guest, friend of taste. And I, I got to talking to him, and I want to get your thoughts on this. Are we can we support in New York and LA and maybe DC? Can we support like a restaurant that is actually a dessert tasting menu where you walk in? Maybe there's like primarily desserts with like maybe one savory course, but it's like primarily desserts. Can we support that? 
Why do you want one savory course? Um, good question. So and is pa- it coming before or after? I see that. I don't think it's. I, I don't think it's sequential. I, I think, and I and I, I say mm. that because Pong, his restaurant, used to do both, but it leaned heavily into pastry. Um, I would not mind a savory course in the middle as a reset, personally. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. It's a good question, though. I feel like five pastry courses alone would be a little much if you're paying like eighty-five. I don't know. What do you think? I think not in this iteration of the world that Mm -hmm. we find ourselves at the moment. Mm -hmm. And I also think, like, it's very challenging to have a large dessert, as Americans often do, uh, at the end of a meal. I feel like it should be in the afternoon. And if so— and. So if culturally we could wrap our heads around having a dessert tasting in the afternoon, a lot like British tea, maybe that would work. Radical. This is ra- – I, I mean, <laughs> absolute respect the take. I, I think it's so interesting that you say that because it, I agree. You wake up at like 3 in the morning if you've had two desserts at like 8 or 9 or 10 p.m. Like alcohol aside, like you, you just can't – your body can't Process. function. Yeah. Yeah. But we all want it. Like we want to go to a restaurant and have that last course. Well, and and for me, again, the intensity and the the size of things is so important, right? A few bites of something delicious and intense should be enough. Back to the question about the tasting menu. If it was only in the afternoon, yeah. how many courses would it be and how would you construct that? Just like riffing right now. Um. I think three. I think five is really pushing it. It's for like the real dessert heads. So three, What? how do? How does that pace? Because I, I think this can work. Wow, really? Okay. I do. Do you have financing? I wish, yeah. Like um, somebody does listening. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so maybe it's like um, fruity, like tomato kind of thing. Yeah. So you're starting with a traditionally savory thing that you're having be a little savory. Like a tomato galette. Yeah. Or gazpacho. Gazpacho. Oh, like, yes. Sure. A soup. Yeah. Something in it. Yeah. So you arrive, you sit down, and you're having a a gazpacho. Okay. Course one, done. Nice and light. Yeah. Bright. Um, As I mentioned earlier, I'm not as prolific as Melissa. So this might take a minute or a hundred minutes. I think people may be running this at Uh, (laughs) 1.5 speed. So we'll get through the pauses. We can edit them out. Um, Okay. So fruit, we're going to end with chocolate. Agree. Something in the middle, maybe a nut situation, a nutty, moussey, maybe, no, maybe not moussey. Yeah, maybe moussey because that's nice and light. Yeah. Um, With like an intense nutty base of some kind. Um, so that's three. We're ending with a nutty. No, we're ending with chocolate. Ending I haven't gotten chocolate. to the oh, chocolate so part yet. So, so two is nutty. Okay. Yeah, number two is nutty, and number three is chocolate. Yeah. So what's the chocolate dessert then to end? Okay, you're looking at me like, duh. Chocolate caramel tart. <laughs> Your head note was amazing. You put it in the book. You put this like recipe that everyone that we talked about in the top. You wrote, like, it's like the shortest head note in the entire book. Quote, I started making this tart when I worked at Gramercy Tavern. 
It's so good that I never stopped. I did, however, try something new. I added salted peanuts to the filling. That's your head. <laughs> so funny. I love that. <laughs> so you got to end with a tart. Okay. Yeah. I, I Like, this can happen. This can work. I think that people would love to have an afternoon into early evening. And then maybe at the end, because we are conditioned to like dessert. So maybe a three-courser. Some people may just be cool with it. Okay. We just need um, people to take, like, an hour and a half break in the afternoon. Yeah. Are you in the kitchen these days? Are you are you in production right now? Do you go in? Um, I'm not really in production. I'm more in R&D. R&D. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, which is dreamy, right? Do you get to travel for the job? Uh, oof, I did a little, yeah. We went to Italy in the spring. Yeah. That was pretty amazing. Sure. Yeah, that was great. Where else are you going? Nowhere else on the horizon, I don't think. Claudia, we asked all guests on the Taste Podcast, if you could write a cookbook or food culture book without the burden of time, meaning you have no deadline, or budget, meaning you have unlimited funds to, to write this book, what would that book project be? I think kind of what I was speaking about earlier, the the history, the genesis of pastry and sweets and how we eat it and how it came to fit into our lives, why it became so important and necessary. So I think more of a, a history book about, um, yeah, the evolution of the way we eat, mm-hmm. our diets, mm-hmm. um, but it would have to be around the world. Yeah, of course. You yeah, have to, okay. Is there a culture that you'd, you'd like think, wow, it would be really nice to, to really dive into the The, the, the Middle course. East, I think. Yeah. it's. I mean, I feel like so many cultures really started yeah. there. And, and so, yeah. I, I would love be to really read that. Cool. Oh, good. <laughs> Claudia Fleming, thank, thank you. you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure. Tanya Bush and Eliza Barbanel, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Hi. Hi. So, Tanya, this is Team Cakezine. Eliza has been on the podcast before. We, she is a contributing editor at Taste. That's true. We are colleagues. We, we slack a lot. First time I met you, so thank you for coming in. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I want to know, first off, like, Cakezine is, you just wrapped your second issue, and it'll be, it is on sale now, and we'll have links in the show notes. You should buy this. It's a great publication. How did you meet, and was there cake involved in the union of the two of you? Um... <laughs> There was not cake involved, but there were cookies. Um, I slid into Eliza's DMs um, <laughs> as as all the great partnerships begin. <laughs> um, and I asked her if she wanted to try um, some of these strawberries and cream cookies that I make. Uh, and she she said yes. And <laughs> we, we met. We had a coffee and um, we had a scary amount in common. Uh, we were both we're both twins. Uh, we're both Scorpios. Um, we're both like interested in the intersection of of literature and writing and food. Yeah, which is maybe more important than the other two. Although I think the other two were enough of a realization to mm-hmm. have us keep talking. And <laughs> I think spend we spent time together. Yeah, we spent like six hours talking a really long time, oh, fun. and that's how we became friends. Yeah, and then um, we ran a bake sale together, yeah. um, a mutual aid bake sale. Um, so that was sort of our first uh, foray into the the world of dessert organizing. <laughs> and like organizing spreadsheets. And organizing spreadsheets, yeah. exactly. Google Docs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Living in Google Drive. Yeah. It was um, December 2021, and 
we both have a lot of connections in the food world here in New York City and I think had just been over the course of our friendship talking about how it'd be fun to do a collaboration together and that seemed like the right opportunity. We brought together 12 different bakers, I think including Tanya and then also two bakers that did cake raffles and uh, it was obviously a lot of organizing that happened in spreadsheets and Mm -hmm. over the phone and everything in between and uh, it was really successful and I think like that got us excited to do a project that would be a little bit... um, more creative and a little mm. bit more long-term. Yeah. So, Eliza, you worked at Bon Appetit and uh, Condé Nast. Uh, Tanya, you have baked professionally and you are in, uh, getting an MFA in fiction writing? In so, creative nonfiction. Okay, great. So I want to hear about that that world and we'll get to – I want to get a little bit of your background, Eliza. We haven't okay. really talked about your resume on the microphone. But, Tanya, tell, tell us a little bit about what um, your MFA education is like and what do you want to do with that? Because it's very cool that you're baking – and writing and making a zine, it's extremely um, active. Yes. Um, well, I've been uh, baking since I was a little kid. I had a ferocious sweet tooth. Um, and so baking was a means to an end. And that end was, you know, imbibing as much sugar as possible. <laughs> um, and I work for an organization called Tables of Contents that um, uses um, food as an access point for exploring literature. Um, And I've always loved writing. Um, I've always loved um, the creation of art in relationship to food. Tanya, so when you were growing up, was there one like recipe that you made that like got you like hooked on baking? Um, I made a lot of ice cream, actually. I So I worked at an artisanal ice cream shop um, and bakery for, like, five-plus years, and we were very active in, like, the ice cream making itself. So I... I was obsessed with making lavender mascarpone ice cream, which oh is gosh. like, yeah, such a such a specific choice for a, a young child. But um, yeah, I was really just interested in ice cream as a forum for experimentation and play. And um, I also loved eating ice cream. It was like something I ate before dinner all the time. What so. a tremendous recipe or concept to start with, like ice cream. I mean, how do you get the texture right? Like when you're a kid, like how do you get in that? How do you get in that exactly like, great mouthfeel? Well, I mean, I was making custards yeah. um, and so I cool. had like one of those like, you know, shitty like kitchen aids that like, you know, would like break all the time. Um, of course, I had done the like shake a bag method for sure. Yep. Um, but, you know, because I worked in an ice cream shop, I sort of had this this method in front of me um, and, and like people to talk to about it. Cool. I just want to call attention to something that Tanya very casually mentioned, which I think is a core part of her personality, which is the fact that you eat dessert before dinner as a regular occurrence. <laughs> when, a regular occurrence. When did you start doing this and what is the merit in that? What is the merit in it? I mean, it's childlike whimsy and indulgence. I don't like to have to wait until um, <laughs> after dinner. You know, I, I think dessert is often relegated to the final course, and I would prefer to design what I'm going to eat mm-hmm. for my savory course based on what I'm eating for my sweet course. Um, so, yeah, I very often will get, like, a cheesecake, and then, like, then I'll have a salad, something a little lighter, or, um, you know, a, like, tart, and then maybe I can do something a little bit more indulgent. Does it, like, like blow your palate? out a little bit by going starting with sweet or is that just a myth I have an incredible capacity for yeah. for indulging in sugar like yeah. I can eat I can eat cake for every meal and feel amazing <laughs> not to brag <laughs> no it's a bit of a brag I love it I, I've thought about that cake would be the one thing that I would eat every day if I had a possibility I've, I talked to my wife about that like maybe a week ago I love cake so much <laughs> what cake would it be oh I mean German chocolate I would go into a peanut butter something 
Um, I think that like birthday cakes um, with buttercream. I'm like a Midwestern kid, so I have buttercream always like coming out of my ears. Like that's just like. Yeah, I, I hear that. Tanya made a, a vanilla cake, a yellow cake with chocolate cream cheese frosting recently that oh gosh. I went feral for that cake. And this is another interesting thing about our partnership is that I'm actually like not a big baker or dessert person. And so when Tanya and I cook for each other, I can make something savory and then she'll do dessert, which is a very um, fertile partnership for us. <laughs> so, Liza, you worked at Condé Nast and you, so you worked in like magazine making. Um, how is this different from like putting out an issue of Bon Appetit? How's cake seem different? <laughs> I'm laughing because it, it could not be, you know, the level of resources yeah. that Condé Nast has and that cake scene has could not be more different, which yeah. is very freeing and fun. And also, um, so what happened was that we did this bake sale. And as we were working on the bake sale, Tanya started telling me about a longtime dream that she had uh, to do a magazine all about cake. And I thought that was a really fun concept because cake is not essential, but is also very essential in culture and in people's yeah. lives, even as we're just talking about. Um, and, and it was a particular moment in which cake was sort of like dominating culturally. There were all these sort of like sculptural, artistic, freaky, wacky cakes mm-hmm. on everyone's social media Plus there feeds. was like a TV show, Is It Cake? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that came out after our first issue, oh, actually. Guys. So, I mean, we didn't know. They Finger must the have been pulse. working on it for a while. <laughs> but we did. I feel like the cake zeitgeist has been growing around the country and especially in New York over the past year. And we, I think, were very lucky and also intentional and in, in kind of seeing that and wanting to be a part of it in that way, um, just for that context. But when we made this whole magazine together, at first it was going to be pretty small. And then by the end of our first issue, we had over 30 contributors. It was over 70 pages. We were printing, you know, thousands of copies. And I was familiar with that whole process from working at Bon Appetit. I was an editor there for over three years. I mainly worked on the website, but I was also editing pages for the magazine and working with the art department. And Mm -hmm. and so all of that process of making the physical magazine was something that was in my wheelhouse. And then I realized that that's actually, you know, only half of the business. And we had to be registering a business and paying sales tax in the state of New York and working with stockists and handling distribution and all of the kind of things that when you work at a legacy media publication get handled by someone that's not on editorial were also within our purview. So I think that was the biggest shift for me. So let's talk about issue two. What is the theme? Because each of these issues of Cake Scene has a theme. So is there a theme for issue two? Like what, what are we talking about here? Uh, we're talking about Wicked Cake. Nice. Um, our first issue was Sexy Cake. Um, twin issues were sort of how we conceptualized of it. Uh, as twins ourselves. As twins ourselves. <laughs> um, and, you know, we were were taking something celebratory and uh, saccharine and delicious and uh, sort of exploring the darker side, the insidious side. And this is actually the theme that we came up with first. Tanya was really interested in... And I think everyone of our generation is very interested in the movie Matilda um, yeah. and the Bruce Bogtrotter cake scene. Are you familiar with this? No, I'm not. Oh, you have to go watch this afterwards. It's like, well, it's in the book also if you've read Roald Dahl. But, but it's it iconic. For Bruce Bogtrotter who steals a slice of Madame Trunchbull's cake, I believe. Apologies to Bruce if the stealing doesn't <laughs> happen. But um, he's forced to eat this entire chocolate cake in front of the whole school. And it's... Uh, really unsettling and gross, but also kind of triumphant because he mm-hmm. does it. And I think um, that's a really iconic scene in our generation of 
uh, oh, wow, cake can be punishment? Like, that's shocking, especially for a kid who spends their entire life scheming about how to get sugar. Um, and that is really just one example of this whole history of of cake as a vehicle for poison and, and cake in, in horror and all of these mm-hmm. other things. And this is a kind of a Halloween, Scorpio season timed release. So it, it, it sounds felt- like it's, it's tying into Halloween. You're, you're dropping around there. Yeah. So, so I guess when you were calling, making a call for writers to contribute, is there, is there an idea that you feel like is really strong for you? Like, is there an idea that's not strong for you? Because I want to get into your, like, your editorial vision for this because it is really a literary publication. I love it. Um, well, I would say for, for both of us, we are definitely interested in, and I think in general, food media can be really broad these days. And we yeah. thought, what if we give a really specific lens to people and then see the variety of things that come out of that? So I think there were a lot of different ideas. We wanted some contemporary cake pieces. I knew I wanted something about that whole is it cake concept and this horror that people experience online when you see a video of a pair of like Levi's 501s and someone cuts <laughs> into them and it's actually cake. So there's a piece on that as wicked cake. And then there's also this whole historical lens that I think Tanya and I are always really drawn to because um, it's easy to think about food in this present day context, but really there's this whole history behind, you know, everything we eat, but cake specifically was created for a lot of specific purposes. Yeah, it's certainly what we tap into here at Taste. It's, it's, yeah. it's a big part of our editorial strategy and vision is to get into the history, but not like the Wikipedia history, but the real cultural history. And I just looking at the lineup of your ep- issue two, um, the evil issue, uh, feels like you're really tapping into some of the deeper meanings of evil and and, and cake. So, Tanya, what? let's talk about a couple of the stories. I don't want to s- spill the show fully, but what are some of the stories you're working on? Yeah, yeah. Um- One that I'm particularly excited about is um, a comic, which is the first time or last issue we weren't able to feature a comic. So it's a new format for us. Um, But Priscilla Frank, who's this incredible um, artist, illustrator, writer, um, tells the story of Anna Schmieg, who um, was one of Germany's last witch trials. And she was um, accused of poisoning a neighbor, Anna Fessler. Uh, on Shrove Tuesday via a fatty oat bun. Oh, man. Um, And she was this sort of, like, cantankerous woman. Um, She was boozy and promiscuous and sort of a pariah um, in the village of Langenberg in Germany. And she was um, accused of being a witch and uh, tortured and, um, uh, you know, under this excruciating torture, she confessed and... um, and was and was was killed. Horrible, horrible uh, incident. And, and is there history that she was framed for these crimes? Well, I think it's hard to say. I think when you look at witchcraft in general, a lot of the people that were being accused of being witches in that era, and this is in the United States as well, were already on kind of the outskirts of yeah. society. And it's funny, you know, this comic um, is illustrating all these things that she was being accused of, like drinking too much wine and being promiscuous and like cursing somebody's cow and. And it looks like something reductorists would post and people would <laughs> post today and be like, this is me. And so I think that's funny to us also is looking at these historical things in a modern lens. And on one level, it's kind of funny that this woman who, you know, is like kind of a badass today, like would be fun to hang out with was like, those are the things that were making her being accused of being mm-hmm. a witch, you know, wickedness as opposed to evil, which is I think a fine word as well. But I think wickedness has a lot more ambiguity in that. And and even the fact that like you think about someone, oh, a cake being used in a witchcraft trial, that sounds kind of funny. But then the reality is that like two women both died as a result of this. And it led to all of these conceptions about like women who are on the outskirts 
being seen as wicked and the things that they make, whether or not it's like shrove cakes that you're sharing with your community or there's other pieces about witches as well yeah. that like those things actually could be a lot more serious. One of the wicked foodstuffs you write about includes snack wells. Oh, yeah. Um, I love the topic. We've we've dabbled in it here at Taste. I want to hear about the uh, cake scene's take on snack wells. Eliza, what do you think? Well, it's interesting. We had this historian, um, Casey Highsmith, who pitched it to us. And I think in general, this was our first issue that was open for pitches. The last one we reached out to people. Um, and so the fact that a historian was interested in writing for the magazine was was thrilling to us. And the pitch was um, equally thrilling. And it, it's talking about the larger history of uh, desserts being moralized in America. Mm. There's a whole wonderful aside about um, the man who invented graham crackers. He was very much anti-refined flour and sugar and all of these things, right? And As, masturbation. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was he was a, a dietary reformer who preached asceticism in basically all facets of life. Um, he thought masturbation uh, contributed to venereal disease, yeah. um, but he just thought that basically, uh, yeah, celibacy in everything uh, was the, the way to be. Is this tied to the brothers who started Kellogg's in Battle Creek, Michigan? Yeah, I think it's a similar concept. So yeah. the connection is that he wants people to be abstaining from all of these things and he thinks that graham crackers are the way to keep you on the straight and narrow like mm. they're such a bland cracker and i think the same thing with kellogg's um what it, what's not a frosted flake but the well i think cornflakes cornflakes or maybe something of, of the of that or, or something of the wheated flakes yeah. yeah like there's no way you're Reason gonna <laughs> be in the mood after eating a graham cracker <laughs> so what would this guy think about like the cinnamon and sugar version of graham crackers oh, it's, a, it's a gateway cereal for sure <laughs> he would be off of that yeah. um but this piece is talking about this larger history of uh the way that desserts were being moralized in america and then connecting it to Snackwell, which was the fat-free line introduced by was it nabisco i believe in, nabisco absolutely yeah in the 90s at first, and then they did a, a rebrand uh, maybe 10 years later, and the tagline is be bad, snack well. So yeah. most desserts are bad, mm-hmm. but this fat-free version, which was marketed very much towards towards women in this period, if you've seen the commercials, um, is being moralized as the better choice. Yeah. How can we buy Cake Zine? I would like to know, is it uh, available at bookstores? Is it available online? Where can we buy it, Tanya? Yeah, um, we've got stockists all over the city and the country. Um, A lot of them are sold out right now of Sexy Cake, but we'll be re-upping with Wicked. Um, We're at uh, MoMA PS1 Bookshop. We're at McNally Jackson, um, Head High, and um, Archistratus Mm -hmm. in in Brooklyn. and then obviously you can buy from us directly um, at cakezine.com. Um, but, you know, folks in L.A., we're at um, Now Serving L.A. Um, yeah, I mean, I would say definitely go to www.cakezine.com. <laughs> yeah. Buy directly from us, please. I love that. www.cakezine.com. <laughs> and there's a list of stockists there if you want to go buy in person. But we do ship um, everywhere in the country. So it's definitely the best way to find it. You're going to be popping off a lunch party for Cakezine? Yeah, we we had a, a very well-attended launch party for the first run, which was really fun. We had some tattoo artists that were doing the very permanent party favors. <laughs> People walked that. away with some butter knife tattoos and some cake tattoos. Fun. Some sexy tattoos. Some sexy tattoos, yeah. So <laughs> we'll have some Wicked-themed tattoos for this run. Uh, we had some DJ friends that were playing at the last one, so that will for sure be happening. Cool. I don't know when this is going to come out, but if it hasn't been November 10th yet, okay. you can come to the Cake Zine launch party, and it's also my birthday. So, oh, right on. Yeah. I There's love a good a lot of cake. A double, yeah, yeah. I love a, a birthday party, launch party 
Excellent yeah. choice. I think it will come out before November 10th. So definitely get your tickets, get your cake scene. We asked all guests on Taste Podcast if you could write a food or culture book without the burden of time, meaning you don't have a deadline. We all know about deadlines here. Or budget, meaning you have an unlimited amount of money to do it. What would that book be? It's a great question. Um, so I'm actually working on a cookbook proposal right now. Um, so that would probably be my answer. It's a um, narrative baking book. Cool. Uh, sort of pastry pilgrim's progress, if you will, a coming of age story through baking um, tied to uh, my uh, baking page, Will This Make Me Happy? Um, so I think, yeah, if I if I had all the money in the world, I would bring that into being a little faster than yeah. the process has been going right now. So Eliza, I, you know, you're on the mic often, but I, I got to ask you this question. I, I, don't, I don't know the answer. Well, I think like the cheater answer is that I would love to have all of the money in the world to fund Cake Scene yeah. because we have too many ideas and not enough resources to make it happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but that doesn't really feel quite fair. So I would say this other idea that I've been kicking around that's maybe not for a cookbook, but more of a reported food culture book is I'm like very interested in the idea of quote unquote um, ethical food or like people that are trying to make food systems in better ways. And um, I guess that does tie into snack wells in some way, right? Like they clearly were not better for you because it was low fat, high sugar, high process. Mm -hmm. But um, whether that's like spice change that are cutting out the middleman or wellness foods in that whole ecosystem, going off of my Erewhon obsession, I think that it would be really fun to um, kind of dive into uh, you know, no ethical consumption under capitalism, but what are people that are trying to do ethical consumption in a very little literal way look mm-hmm. like? I love your Erwan obsession. When's the next article for Taste? Oh, man, they got to get back to me. I mean, they did <laughs> let me. I had a really great interview with Anna Wu, who's the product yeah. buyer for Erewhon, about how they sift through all of the next level products that come their way. And I think as someone that's that's from L.A. but hasn't lived there for a while, whenever I want to tap into a really specific part of L.A., I always go to Erewhon. So I think I need to just think about what the next Yeah, Erewhon let's get Anna on the podcast. Let's, let's interview her. Honestly, I think that would be really fun because I have so many questions about, like, what is gem activated water? Like, yeah. who could tell me? She oh probably gosh. could. Or she could give you a great answer. I don't know if it's, like, the real answer, but. I don't think there is a real answer. <laughs> a lot of that stuff there. Apologies to the gem-activated water people, but I think it's a scam. Tanya Bush and Eliza Barbanel, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thanks for having us. Thanks. The Taste Podcast is hosted by me, Matt Rodbard. It's produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.